0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season two, episode fifty nine. A King's Ransom. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I must welcome my new members of the Patreon House of Lords. Ed and Carrie Aleferowitz are now the Earl and Countess of Stonehaven, and they have been joined by Clytemnestra Tinderides, and I really hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Patrons of Earl and above also have access to bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. When Charles I, King of England, Ireland and Scotland, faced the reality of his defeat in the Civil War, he decided to surrender. Not to the New Model Army, which was marching on his capital at Oxford. Not to the English Parliament in London, which was just down the road. Both would have been easy to arrange. Instead, once he ruled out voluntary exile, he made his way north, dodging the forces of his English subjects, to hand himself over to the Scottish Army of the Covenant. As we touched on last time, this was a strategic choice. Surrendering to his English subjects would have been much more convenient, but the king was not only determined to force a break between the Covenanters and Parliament, he had been led to believe, through vague statements by the Covenanters and the clever words of a French diplomat, that the Scots were ready and eager to take him under their wing and place him back on his throne. Instead, when he arrived, he found that the Scots were quite surprised to find him on their doorstep. Since they were, you know, still at war with him, they took him prisoner. Politely, with all the due care and ceremony and manners, but he was still a prisoner. But, just because Charles dramatically misjudged how eager the Covenanters were to support his cause, he wasn't barking up entirely the wrong tree when it came to their alliance with Parliament. In terms of relationships, it was looking quite rocky. Both sides were looking warily at the other, and the relationship between the Covenanters and their English allies was rapidly changing. To quote historian Lawrence Kaplan, no longer were the Scots thought of as allies or brethren in arms, or even as a people with common sympathies. They began to be viewed as mercenaries, soldiers brought into England to fight for a price and they would be paid, or promised payment, as long as they performed this service. The divide between the Covenanters and the Long Parliament kept getting wider. Remember, the Covenanters had decided to intervene in the English Civil War to enforce a Presbyterian religious settlement and a confederal union. Both of these objectives were, in essence and in motivation, defensive in nature. Only through the further reformation of the English Church along Presbyterian lines, and establishing a Scottish voice in English affairs, could Scotland, and her most perfect Kirk, be safe in the future. The price of Scottish involvement was agreed by the English in the Solemn League and Covenant and the Treaty of Military Assistance. But even then, at Parliament's lowest point in the Civil War, when Scottish intervention looked not just helpful but vital to winning that war, the English had fought for wiggle Room over these demands. And as we've seen, as the war wore on, the appetite for these aims from the Scots-English allies began to wane. Scottish interference in English affairs was resented, no matter how useful it had been in aiding Parliament in England or the Protestant colonists in Ulster. As we've covered, The independents in Parliament led the charge in trying to disentangle the Covenanters from these English affairs, with the clear objective of cutting the Scots out of any future deal with the King. Among the political Presbyterians, religious Presbyterian was still an objective for many in Parliament, but it was starting to look less and less like the Scottish model. Yes, the bishops would be abolished, and an ordinance to that effect was passed in October 1646. But unlike in Scotland, the Church would not run its own affairs without secular interference. The Two Kingdoms model, championed by the Scots, an earthly kingdom of king and parliament, and a godly kingdom, which managed the kirk without interference from the earthly kingdom, was discarded. Parliament established itself as the final authority on church matters, not a general assembly of the church, as in the Scottish model. It was a quote, Lame Erastian Presbytery. Erastianism, defined by Ian Gentles, is the policy of subordinating the Church to secular political authority. This was not what the Scots had invaded England for, nor was it what the Covenanters believed the English Parliament had agreed to in the Solemn League and Covenant. That was a religious oath with God. What the hell were the English playing at? But it was in line with English ideas of the role of Parliament in religion. Parliament had played a key role in approving the Reformations under the Tudors. Every English Parliament under the Stuart Kings, James and Charles, had, to one extent or another, shared grievances against religious policy, and the Assembly of Divines had met in Westminster under the authority of Parliament. The English Parliament's authority over religion was, if you will, sacred. The Covenanters were also horrified by the variety and the spread of religious radicalism within the New Model Army and English cities. This was the opposite of what they wanted. If England was allowed to foment heresies and sectarianism under the deceptive umbrella of toleration, then the perfect Scottish Kirk would risk contamination from across the border. No less than the meddling of Charles and Lord, this could not be allowed. Worse, the successes of the New Model Army, particularly the rising star of the independent Oliver Cromwell, raised the profile of his agenda. For example, in the wake of Naseby, he had urged Parliament to support toleration. The successes of the New Model Army counterbalance the influence of the Army of the Covenant. With Fairfax and Cromwell mopping up the rest of the Royalists, why exactly do we need an army of Scotsmen occupying the north of England? And why exactly should we listen to them on religion? On the issue of a closer union, a Scottish political writer, David Buchanan, became so annoyed by the clear reluctance of the long Parliament to commit to a union that in 1645 he published Truth, It's Manifest, which complained that Parliament was not following through with its part of the deal. Both the Commons and the Lords were furious at these accusations, probably more so because they contained more than a bit of truth. But both houses voted that the pamphlet was false and scandalous, that Buchanan was an incendiary, and that the pamphlet would be burnt by the hangman as a clear rejection of its claims, none of which helped soothe parliamentary-covenanter relations. So it's safe to say that the covenanters and the parliamentarians were not singing from the same hymn sheet. This made the fact that the king was in Scottish custody something of a sore issue for the English. In May, the House of Commons voted that the fate of the King was entirely a matter for the English Parliament, and ordered that he be transferred to English custody at Warwick Castle, but the Lords, eager to keep the Scottish Alliance alive, blocked the Ordinance. In order to keep the King secure, just in case the Alliance with the English Parliament completely broke down and they were tempted to seize the King by force, the Earl of Leven finished up at Newark, and marched his army, King in tow, further north to Newcastle firmly and deeply, in Covenanter-controlled territory. For his part, the king was determined to get everything from everyone without giving up anything himself. To this end, he negotiated separately with the Covenanters and with the English Parliament. First, in his wildest dreams, Charles aimed for a very high bar indeed. He planned to win the Covenanters into his camp, okay, fair enough, Unite them with Scottish Royalists, mm, that's a bit tough, and the Irish Confederates, and all together they would sweep into England and place him back on his throne. Okay, so that's a plan. He wrote to the Marquis of Ormond, his Lord Deputy in Ireland, to spell out this latest fantasy, who had his own doubts, but sent out feelers to Robert Munro, the Covenanter Commander in Ireland. Monroe was, obviously, horrified at the idea of joining forces with the rebellious Irish Catholics he'd just spent years fighting. Monroe sent word of the King's latest delusional deception back to Edinburgh, and also to London. So on the 6th of June, Monroe's letter, outlining Charles's ambition to bring the Scots and the Irish into an alliance against the English Parliament, was read out in Parliament. Quite apart from the improbability of the plan actually coming to anything at all, once again it displayed that Charles was a duplicitous piece of work, and it certainly did nothing for the independent suspicion of the Scots. Five days later, the King's own letter reached Parliament. In this, he swore that he hadn't surrendered to the Scots out of any desire to, quote, make a division, end quote. His firm and only desire was to see peace restored to his kingdom and his subjects. As a sign of good faith, which he certainly needed because he'd essentially just replied all, explaining how untrustworthy he was, he ordered the standing down of his remaining forces, including Oxford. As we saw last time, the Oxford garrison departed with all honours, marching out of the city with their heads held high, before disbanding several miles away. The princes Maurice and Rupert were ordered out of the kingdom, but given some time to settle their affairs, though they were strictly ordered not to travel to London, the future James Seventh and Second, the young Duke of York, was taken and placed into confinement in London. It was a comfortable confinement, but still confinement, and the teenaged prince would plot his escape. When news reached Edinburgh that their dealings with the king had been revealed to the English Parliament, Courtesy of Charles not understanding early modern outlook, the Committee of Estates ordered the Scottish Commissioners in London to be exceptionally flexible regarding any English peace proposals to the King. No need to strain the alliance any further. The Marquess of Argyll, who had stopped by Newcastle to try and convince the King to sign the Solemn League and Covenant no surprise how well that went then arrived in London, and he spoke to both Houses of Parliament and accepted. On behalf of the Scots, whatever proposals Parliament decided to put forward to the King, which was one hell of a blank check. And so, in July, a parliamentary delegation arrived in Newcastle and presented the King with 19 propositions. These Newcastle propositions demanded, among other things, the abolition of episcopacy, parliamentary control over the English military for 20 years, parliamentary nomination of the King's officials the ending of any negotiations, secret or otherwise, with the Irish Confederacy, the annulment of the cessation, complete parliamentary control of the Irish War, and the exclusion of the Scots from it, and that the King sign the Solemn League and Covenant. Well, this went down like a lead balloon, and not just with Charles. Obviously, Charles hated these terms, but despite their realpolitik decision to accept whatever terms the English Parliament proposed, the Covenanters were far from happy with the propositions. The propositions were very much an independent-driven list, with a few nods towards the political Presbyterians and their Covenanter allies. The propositions were, in the words of Gentles, a partisan, independent device to cut the confederal knot Between Scotland and England. On the part of Charles, he didn't like any of the propositions, but it seems like his major sticking point, to the extent that it became a moral objection more than any of the more secular terms, was the Church. Whether or not the Assembly of Divines settled on a Presbyterian system with parliamentary oversight, which was looking likely, the propositions enforced his acceptance that the bishops were abolished, gone, kaput not appearing in this Church of England. For both religious, practical, and sentimental reasons, he agreed with his father's claim. No bishops, no king. Losing the bishops, besides any personal affection he had for them, and he had plenty, would remove a key pillar of royal authority. He wrote to his councillors, who were running out of patience with their sovereign's stubbornness, and reminded them that... People are governed by pulpits more than the sword in times of peace. His advisors, including his wife, Henrietta Maria, tried to convince him to accept the facts. He'd lost, and surely, his wife asked, it would be better to be a Presbyterian king than no sort of king at all. No necessary. prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher. And I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales Every week, search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So, why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist?
0: Charles didn't seem to think so, and he was stuck because he had no intention of agreeing to the Newcastle propositions. But he'd been given no other option. His Celtic miracle had not appeared so he did the only thing he could. He played for time. He hummed and hawed about accepting the propositions, he dragged out the negotiations, all the while hoping that the fraying Anglo-Scottish alliance was about to snap. He continued his secret correspondence with pretty much everyone, and he wrote to Argyle and the Covenanters, to Ormond, to the Confederates, to the French, all in the hope that something, someone, some miracle, would give him an alternative route out of this mess. His first official reply to the propositions was vague, and instead of saying anything definite, he suggested that he should come to London, where he can negotiate directly with Parliament. Now, Parliament obviously saw the danger in inviting the King back to his capital before a treaty was signed, and especially this King, so they rejected this, uh, offer. Charles's delaying strategy actually started work too well. In August, the Scots began the process of withdrawing their army. They knew that their presence in England was turning more and more of the English against them, threatening the Alliance and achieving little. Charles wasn't any more flexible with them in their custody than he was with his English subjects. Argyle and the Committee of Estates realised that they were risking the goodwill of the English Parliament for the benefit of a king they did not trust and who was making no effort to compromise. The committee ordered their London commissioners to start negotiating the price of their withdrawal, and the price of the king they would leave behind. The commissioners set the price of this withdrawal at £2 million, the total cost of their intervention and occupation. Parliament took this initial offer, ran the numbers, and counted with their own £100,000. The Commissioners took this counter offer, reminded the English that, uh, we said two million quid, why are you offering us spare change? And said the best they could do was half a million. The haggling continued until September, when Parliament and the Commissioners finally agreed that the price of Scottish withdrawal from half the kingdom, as payment for their services, was £400,000 but they would only start their withdrawal once half of this sum was delivered to Newcastle. Trust was in short supply. The Committee of Estates sent a delegation of commissioners to Newcastle to try one last time to convince the King to negotiate in good faith. This delegation was headed by the Duke of Hamilton. Remember him? We last saw Hamilton when Charles, furious at his failure to prevent Scottish intervention on Parliament's side, had him arrested and imprisoned. We'll talk more about Hamilton next time, and see how he found himself a commissioner of the Covenant of Regime, when we cover the engagement. But, suffice it to say, Charles was no more open to accepting the propositions now than he had been a month before. So the process of Scottish withdrawal continued. The money to pay off the Scots came from an independent decision to kill two birds with one stone. The ordinance to abolish the bishops, which I mentioned earlier was passed in October, was followed by an ordinance to borrow more money, using the confiscated lands of the bishops as collateral. Creditors who had already loaned money to Parliament were offered the chance to double their loans, in exchange for twice as much back, plus interest, and first refusal to buy the bishops' lands when they went to market. This was known as doubling, and it was incredibly effective, It took just eight days to raise the first Scottish payment. Throughout all of this, representatives of both the Scottish Committee of Estates and the English Parliament were still negotiating with Charles, and he was still sticking to his guns. His second formal response to the Newcastle propositions was just as evasive as his first, and patience was running thin from both kingdoms. Not for the first time, and somehow not for the last, Charles's unjustified belief in his own cunning bought him nothing but failure. On the 15th of December, the final terms of the Scottish withdrawal were agreed between Parliament and the Commissioners, and the next day, a token amount of £12,000 was paid. Major General Skippen was dispatched north with £200,000, the first half of the full payment, and the final condition of the Covenant of Withdrawal. The Scots were done whether they took the high road or the low road, they were going back to Scotland. On Christmas Eve, the Scottish Parliament, recalled earlier in the year, voted that Charles would not be welcome in Scotland, or have any role in the Government of Scotland, until he accepted the Newcastle propositions. On New Year's Eve, both Houses of Parliament agreed that Charles would be taken to Holmby House in Northamptonshire, and just over two weeks later, the Scottish Parliament voted to transfer custody of His Majesty to the English Parliament. On the 26th of January, Parliament's agents arrived in Newcastle to begin the handoff. Then, on the 30th, the first payment of £100,000 was given to Leven, and he ordered his army out of Newcastle. Four days later, a second instalment of another £100,000 arrived, and the handover of the first half of the payment was complete and the Army of the Covenant began its march to the border. The last Scottish regiment left England on the 12th of February, 1647. It was all very orderly, very efficient, but the mercenary discarding of Charles left a bad taste in many Scottish mouths. The withdrawing soldiers and the Covenanter leadership like Argyle were slandered as, quote, Traitor Scots who sold their king. With the Army of the Covenant gone, Charles was, with all due politeness and ceremony, collected from Newcastle, and told, with all due politeness and ceremony, that he was now under parliamentary guardianship. He was taken from Newcastle to Nottingham, where General Fairfax was there to meet him, and escort him the rest of the way to Holmby House. Despite his best efforts to avoid falling into parliamentary custody, Charles I was now a prisoner of his English subjects. Before we finish today, let's finish off the Westminster Assembly of Divines. As always, I'm not going to get into the weeds of the theology here, but the Assembly is important to our narrative, and what they produce has influenced the faith of millions ever since, so it deserves a few minutes. The Assembly was summoned under the authority of Parliament in June 1643 to complete the reformation of the English Church. Its first charge given to it by Parliament was to revise the 39 Articles, the central tenets of the established Church of England. If the Church was to be further reformed, this was the place to start. But when an alliance was agreed with the Covenant of Scots, and the solemn League and Covenant agreed as the price, their remit now changed. Now, they were instructed to debate the reform of Church government, and consider how the English and Scottish Churches could be unified. In order to aid and advise the Assembly, the Scottish commissioners were given a voice on the body, though they refused the offer of a vote. As in Parliament, factions dominated the Assembly, and as in Parliament, we can find Presbyterians and Independents. The Presbyterians were the most numerous of the delegates, and as the name suggests, and as we know from last time, they wanted some kind of Presbyterian system of church government. That said, not all of them were fervent believers in the superiority of the Kirk model, and favoured Calvinist doctrine with a more English form of church government. The Independents were a much smaller grouping, but their voices were magnified by the influence of Independents in Parliament. The Independents, sometimes called Congregationalists, but for the sake of having too many names, I'll stick with Independents, These independents wanted toleration for the various different Protestant beliefs which had appeared, were appearing, and were spreading throughout England. Limited church government was their goal. But there was a third faction in the Assembly, and we've heard of them already today the Erastians. They argued that civil, secular government could and should overrule ecclesiastical government. After all, the Assembly had gathered under the authority of Parliament. As we saw earlier, what emerged from the Westminster Assembly and approved by Parliamentary Ordinance in March 1647 was a form of limited Presbyterianism, with Calvinist doctrine but subject to the authority of Parliament. This was the lame Erastian Presbytery we mentioned earlier. The Assembly would not be formally dissolved, and it would sit until 1653. In its ten years of existence, the Assembly drafted and published a replacement for the Book of Common Prayer, the Directory of Worship. It created the Westminster Confession of Faith, setting out the creed of the newly reformed Church of England, complete with supporting evidence from the Bible. This was approved by Parliament and by the Scottish General Assembly in April 1647. They also drafted two Catechisms, and the Form of Presbyterial Church Government, which spelled out exactly what their new doctrine was. These were then approved by Parliament in November 1647, then by the Scottish General Assembly in July 1648, and all were ratified by the Scottish Parliament in February 1649. Not bad for ten years. Now, a lot of these developments would be rolled back in England in the subsequent years, especially after the Restoration, but not in Scotland and they remain the doctrinal basis for the faith of millions. Next week, we will see how the factionalism of Parliament will erupt, now that the Scots have withdrawn and are no longer an obvious threat. Presbyterians in Parliament will resume their attacks on the New Model Army, seeking to destroy, one way or another, this political and military threat to their agenda. But Fairfax, Cromwell, and the men of the new model army were not prepared to let a gaggle of politicians betray their promises. We just won the war for them. And now they think they can just throw us aside? Not bloody likely. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bracewell, David Braswell, the Marquis of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, and the Earl of Atlanta, Gary. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you're on the lookout for gifts, or are like me and need to give people ideas, have a look at the Pax Britannica merchandise. There will be a link in the show notes, or you can go to PaxBritannica.info to find out more. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. at the Pirate History Podcast.